Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NYC Real Estate Podcast. I'm Mark Levine, your host. And not only am I the host of the podcast, but also one of the owners of EBMG. We are a property management company in New York City. And today we're going to be handling a great topic because it's timely. We're in February of 2020 and the next cycle has started. And we're talking about FISP, which is the Facade Inspection Safety Program. And to do that, I don't I didn't want to do it alone. So I, I called in the expert, and that is William T. Payne from ONS Associates. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Call me Bill. Bill, <laughs> it's easier. Yeah. So before we start, let me just remind everybody to kind of share um, and subscribe to the podcast. That would be great. We're getting increased listens every week, and I'm watching the numbers, and they're going up, and I'm actually getting a lot of emails uh, saying that people enjoy the show and have specific questions, and we try to answer them. If you want to email the show, you can do so at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you send us a note, we will send it back to you. And we'll, we'll hopefully integrate that into a future episode as well. So, Bill, thanks for coming in. Um, why don't I always ask people when they come in, you know, to give a little bit of a background on your experience and how you ended up at ONS Associates right now. Uh, where you're the vice president. So if you want to give us a little, you know, background on where you've, you know, been in the last 20 years and what you're doing now. Oh, great. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I graduated school as a, as a structural engineer and I went to go work for a contractor. And uh, I actually found ONS working on one of the construction projects I was working on as, as, a, as, a, as a contractor. So I've been with ONS for uh, 21 years now. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, a long time. That's exactly how long I've been at my company, okay. with my company. Perfect. Yeah. That so. explains the gray hairs I see. Yeah, and the bald <laughs> head, but you can't tell. Wearing a hat today. So w what are you responsible for at ONS? Um, <clears throat> I have a range of responsibilities from business development to project management. Um, you know, we're, a, we're a, a working principal type of a company, so... You know, all of our experience goes directly to the projects, not just to the bean counting and the marketing and so right. forth. So, you know, we uh, we cut our teeth on on restoration of buildings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our company started in 1996, and we've been doing restoration work from from the very beginning, starting basically with facades and parking garages. Right. We've grown from there, but you know, probably more than half our business is is, uh, you know, facade restoration. The other, you know, significant portion is parking garage restoration, and, and we've grown into all the other services that we provide. And now we've got the, well, I don't want to go too off topic with the facade stuff, but there is the parking garages. Now it's kind of like the facade program where every five years you have to do an inspection of the garages. And we've seen a lot of dilapidated garages just by managing in the boroughs and in the area, a lot of that. You know, the rebar is, you know, yeah. uh, rusting out and there's a lot of water issues and there's some safety issues. So you're over, you as a company are overseeing both the facade and, and the garage issues yeah. and anything the, else that comes up. The, the garage inspections are very popular right now. Yeah. It, was a, it was an edict by the state. Mm -hmm. The state made the local jurisdictions, the municipalities adopt it. New York City has not yet adopted it. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll be issuing that as part of their um, next revision to the building code. And there'll be some minor changes, but it'll be very similar to the new retaining wall inspection right. and a local law, 11 or FISP law, well, you know, where you'll have to classify it. Um, the difference is for the garages, New York State, it's a three-year cycle. For New York City, it's going to be a six-year cycle. Okay. And they're going to have a two-year filing period, you know, according to the insiders and the, and the DOB that we've spoken with. And the retaining wall that you bring up, it's not all retaining walls. Is it just public-facing retaining walls? Public-facing retaining walls. So if you have a private uh, retaining wall, you don't really have to worry about that. But I yeah. think that um, 
Is it New York City that is it for the retaining walls that once a year they have a free retaining wall inspection? I think they do that. But you're opening up a can of worms if you bring them in. But there was there is some inspection that and that New York City does give for free yearly. I don't know if it's a retaining wall. I think it's I really feel like it's oh, maybe it's a deck. Maybe it's a deck inspection. For, I think it's a deck inspection. Yeah. Sorry to go off topic again. No, no. <laughs> we're we're no, just working I'm, these no, things out. No, I'm learning something. Yeah, I think it, there's one of those, and I'll, I'll clarify that. Um, so, cool. So, why don't you um, walk us through how FISP, which we used to call Local Law 11, and which we used to, before that, call Local Law 10, how that came about, why it came about, and the various changes that we're seeing now. And just to clarify... The timing, we're doing this now because subcycle A of cycle nine, which we're in right now, started on February 21st and it's staggered A, B, and C. And the first one, A, is two years and it goes from February 21st of 20 to 22. So if you're in subcycle A, and we'll explain that in terms of how your building is classified as that, um, now is the time to start, you know, thinking about how you're going to inspect. And you could walk us through. The inspection and you know let's go through the history and then what's in what in is entailed in the inspection and what are we looking for and then how do we kind of go through the process of the three different classifications of how your building is going to be you know classified as right right well you know new york city is not the only city to have a facade inspection law um there's a a large handful of other cities that have that and in each of those cases including new york city it started because somebody got hurt and often it was a, a judge or, or a politician or something of that nature. But these, you know, these are largely a, a public safety inspection because people are getting injured. Um, local law 10 from 1980, uh, those requirements were expanded, and, and we were just trying to Google it somewhere around 1998 for local law. Yeah. Um, the law then changed to, to this FISP law. And you know, there's sort of a cat and mouse game between the consultants and the building owners and the DOB. And I think that's why we're seeing all of these evolutions in how the law is written. Um, one of the more recent ones you had mentioned you know, as we were talking was a few years ago, there was an edict about railings and mm -hmm. balconies. Mm -hmm. And that happened because, um, you, know, you know, a poor woman fell you know, to her death. And it was yeah. actually, um, she actually fell on sidewalk bridge to one of our projects. Oh, really? Yeah. And, oh, wow. And, uh, um, it was it was tragic. Yeah, and, and I remember looking at that particular railing, asking myself if me or our people would have caught that defect. It was really unusual. Yeah, um, you know, but it but it, it you know the DOB saw a public safety risk and and you know published uh, requirements for for those testing things. Yeah, so, and that was during cycle seven, I believe. And yeah. so we for a lot of our buildings, we had already filed, and then that was a unique case where they said, okay, you have to administratively update. Uh, yeah, an yeah, add-on supplement. yep. yeah, supplemental supplement, inspection yeah. which we did for all of our buildings um and that yeah that's terrible so okay so local law 10 in 1980 local law 11 in 1998 when did it switch over to the facade inspection safety program i think it was in, in cycle eight I'm, yeah i'm not mistaken i don't i don't have that date and we we use that interchangeably, interchangeably i still yeah. have it as local law 11 in my head yeah. i know that it's different now yeah so, okay, so we've gone through um, all the previous subcycles, and now we're in, sub, we're in cycle nine. So let me just describe, and I've got the list of, and just you, you could see how in, in studio how I track all of my facade buildings. And this is every building with their block and lot and 
the address, the subcycle, um, how they filed, which are, you know, engineer they've retained. So it's based on the block number, the last number of your block number in the city of New York. And it's typically buildings that are above six stories. Six and a half. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes there could be a question on does my building, which has like half of a window on the cellar, you know, how does that apply? But I think if you search the city's website and you go to the building and you go to, you know, you search the building on the DOB um, website, you go to the facade. If there's no facade filings found, you know that they haven't ever, you know, filed before. Um, So for those buildings that are um, supposed to be filing for that, it goes by block number. Subcycle A, so if your last digit of your block number, and it's not your address, but it's the block of the block and lot, it's four, five, six, or nine, that's classified as subcycle A, which we're in right now until 2022. And as I said before, they're staggered. So subcycle B um, starts February 21st of 21, and it goes till 23, and that's for block numbers 0, 7, or 8. And then the last uh, grouping, subcycle C, is block numbers one, two, or three, and that is from February 21st, 2022 to 24. So from now till the 20, you know, uh, February 21st of 2024, you guys are very busy, just kind of knocking out the different, um, the different subcycles and those, you know, the buildings that are looking at it. So, all right. So can you tell me, I guess, what's what are we looking at now in subcycle nine or cycle nine? What's changed from the past? What are we, uh, go, what are we looking for when we're doing an inspection and how is it, um, actually undertaken? Well, yeah. So we'll start with the basics. Um, the basics are, you are supposed to have a, a qualified exterior wall inspector that the you know, city of New York describes what their qualifications are. And basically it's a licensed professional engineer or professional architect who's supposed to conduct an inspection of the exterior walls. And that inspection has to include, you know, uh, a scaffold drop or some other means of providing what they call a hands-on inspection mm. where you can actually feel and touch, you know, a portion of that wall. So, you know, the, the, um, the report includes a lot of historical information. You know, you're actually tracking the condition of the building from previous cycles. Um, and then you have to report all of the conditions that you find during that inspection. And then you have to classify each of those conditions as being either safe, unsafe, or something in the middle, meaning where it's presently safe, but we think it'll deteriorate to an unsafe condition over you know, a, a certain period of time. And is that period of time usually between now and the next cycle, or is that period of time a year from now? Well, it's anything over a year. If something is could be unsafe in the next year, Mm-hmm. consider that actually an unsafe condition. Okay. So SWARMP, which is safe with the repair and maintenance program. Correct. That's when we don't have something that's unsafe yet, but you feel as the, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you feel as the architect, engineer, the qualified exterior wall inspector that, okay, this could last until the next cycle or before that date when we tell you in the report. And if it is not done by then, then it's going to jump over into the unsafe category. It becomes unsafe, correct. Yeah. Yep. And we were talking before where... Some of the reports will actually state that, um, let's say the report was filed in 2019 or 18, that it has to be done by a certain date. And if it's if the swamp conditions are not performed by that date, and it doesn't necessarily coincide with the cycles that you're in, but it's the date that the architect of record put as the date that the swamp conditions needed to be rectified by, then you jump into an administratively unsafe category right and the the city will consider you if you don't 
do anything to prevent or to show that you're protecting the public, that you're going to be unsafe and you could be subject to penalties and fines and have to throw up the bridge and do the work. Yeah, right? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So the qualified exterior, the QEWI, the qualified exterior wall inspector, um, that's changed, right? It used yeah, to they've be. Been, they've increased it. And, and again, you know, the logic follows that, you know, consultants always tried to be as client friendly as they could while meeting the minimum standards right. published by the city. And the city is the city has done exhaustive studies into the behaviors of the consultants and the owners. Um, many years ago, um, uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but he had said that 85% of all buildings that were safer swarm in one cycle were safer swarm in the following cycle. Right. So they were just rolling it rolling, forward. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody's ever getting out of this. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot of recently published cases where even after having these inspections being performed, you know, people are still getting hurt. And so they've changed the law to really hold the consultants more accountable and the buildings more accountable, you know, because a lot of things were happening in sort of this cottage industry where, you know, oftentimes there would be a QE or an engineer and architect that never left the office and would have minions, sometimes just contractors doing the inspections, forwarding photos and conditions and, and, and the report would get sealed and, and sent to the DOB, and the DOB is trying to crack down on those things. Yeah. Um, and so each of these changes are really, you know, to try to prevent, you know, um, the erosion of the this public safety policy for, you know, which is really what it is. Right. It's helpful on that side, but on the flip side, it's going to make it more expensive for the building to undertake the every five year inspections. My theory on that is we're going from what used to be a one year. QE requirement to be there for one year and have one years of experience to be able to do that to seven. Yeah. So I'm in, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, the pay scale of somebody senior level now versus an entry level, not that it's entry level, but it's entry level in, in terms of experience of a year, that's going to drive up the cost of the inspections. Well, right? Not, not only that, but even the people working under that QE have to have minimum expert, you know, minimum experience too yeah so you know you may have one qe managing multiple projects um, but even the people working under that qe is going to have um, increased requirements as well you know if, if you're uh, degreed you need to have uh, three years experience if you're a tradesperson you need to have five years experience and you know these things are going to be you know uh, certified right so there's going to be a lot more paperwork you know there's going to be a lot more regulation and the DOB has hired, you know, scores of people to to you know, react to this and enforce it as well. We've seen a lot of, um, I think this is new for us. We've seen a lot of filings that were done, completed, and then they were brought out into an audit with the DOB. Yeah, we've 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 had numerous projects audited, and that's only been in the last few years. Um, the DOB is really cracking down, and they will second guess your conclusions. Mm -hmm. You know, and they've they've made us do thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of additional testing to support our conclusions. And it's a very difficult thing to go back to the client and say the DOB, you know, they went out there with their own binoculars and they saw this condition and they don't believe that it's what we, what we said it was, or maybe that particular condition, you know, wasn't observed by us. And right. we, we've had to re set up, you know, scaffolding, do probes, exploratory openings and show them that this is a, uh, you know, a, a safe, a safe condition or they won't let it alone. So they're, they're going after the consultants as well as the owners. Mm -hmm. And what that's doing is really challenging that relationship that a consultant ordinarily has with their client. Um, right. we, we were on one job where the professional 
we were a, a, a pre-bid walkthrough. So us and our competitors were doing a walkthrough for a very large uh, community uh, to write a proposal for this facade inspection. And we all left. One of the bidders, who hadn't yet even been hired by uh, the building, submitted a FISP-3 you know, that said that there were unsafe conditions and, and put the building into sort of a tailspin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all kind of went back to our office saying, well, on one hand, that's your duty as a professional. If you see something unsafe, you have to report it. Right. On the flip side is, you know, you know it's not a very good way to win friends. No. <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 it's a real challenge, but the DOB is going after the consultants, and there are a lot of people losing their licenses, mm-hmm. and they are auditing reports. So they're, they're taking this exceptionally seriously. And, and you know, there were a lot of rumors about, you know, uh, you know these, these amendments to Cycle 9, and you know they all came out just as just as they would have expected. Yeah. And it's going to, it's really changing this from being an inspection to really being a construction project all by itself. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of permits involved, especially if you're uh, erecting scaffolding or suspending scaffolding. There's you know, um, and uh, um, the costs are changing, and it's going to change a lot of sort of the business you know models for how these things are priced and, and provided as well. Yeah. So let's, okay, let's back up a little bit. We know that we need a qualified exterior wall inspector to inspect. How are we inspecting? We have, a, let's say we have a normal building. We have a fire escape. Can they visually inspect from the fire escape? Do they need to drop off a scaffold? What's the normal, and with these log changes, because I'm assuming that we need a wider scope of review. Yeah, I mean, it used to be if there was a fire escape that was in the right place, you could utilize that. Mm-hmm. Now... Because you have to inspect a close-up drop once every 60 foot. So if you have 70 foot, you still need to do two close-up inspections. Right. Well, a fire escape, you may be lucky to have one in the right place, but the odds of you having two in the right place are very small. Yeah. Um, fire escape buildings are usually shorter buildings, so often you can do a lift, which is a little less expensive mm-hmm. uh, than hanging a scaffold. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the buildings that had little to no expense for providing access for that close-up inspection are now going to see a dramatic increase to provide that, you know, you know, either a lift or, or a scaffold to provide that inspection. I have some uh, companies that we've worked with that they'll do either a scaffold drop of off the side of the building or they have a special license to repel mm-hmm. off the side of the building, which we've found is a little bit cheaper because you you're not doing it. You're not rigging up a scaffold each time, pulling it up and then re-rigging it and then going over the other side. They're, they're moving around the building kind of like a mountaineer. Mm-hmm. And they have a special license for it. Do you guys have anybody on yeah, staff rope, that does rope, that? Yeah, yeah. The rope access? Yeah, we have, we have several people do rope access. And, and we use an outside company to do the rigging, mm-hmm. you know, for safety purposes. But it can be, it can be a lot more economical. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah. Um, because obviously now more drops means that, you know, scaffold drops can be anywhere from five to $10,000 for the first one. Yeah. And, and then the second drop, you know, is, is going to be, you know, a little less, but still you know, a significant portion of that. So yeah. rope, rope access is going to be obviously much more. Um, I, I think we've done about uh, $5,000 a day on those instead of 5,000 or 10,000 a drop. Yeah. So if you have a larger building that requires multiple drops, you know, you, you could save a tremendous amount of money by doing that. Um, with the new law, I think I read somewhere that you need to take photos of the is it that you have to take photos of the person inspecting on the wall yeah you know and even before it was necessarily a guideline you know they would question it 
mm-hmm. who did the close up inspection. In fact, they're looking at the dates of when these things happened. Yeah. In fact, they'll look at the date of when you filed the report, when the QE said they were there, when the scaffolding permit was pulled. I mean, there's quite a bit of detective work that, that that's being employed. So yes, I mean, there is, you know, because of all this additional accountability, you know, where, when, and how um, that drop was provided is being documented with photographs and dates and so forth. Right. So in addition to the person that's inspecting it, we need somebody to photograph them and inspecting it to back up with if we ever get audited or are you submitting that with the reports now? Yeah. It's part of the photo doc- yeah. documentation. So yeah. hopefully they don't come back and say, prove it because you've, yeah. you've proven it. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we've gone through the methods of inspecting. If you have the perfect scenario of a fire escape building and you, yeah, you can do the drops over with scaffolding. You could do a lift if it's a smaller building. If it works, um, you can do the rope scout, the rope access over you know, like a mountaineer, like what we were talking right. about. Um, what is it that we're looking for uh, on the building? What are the conditions that cause an alarm to kind of sound off, whether it could be a swamp condition, which is safe for now, but we need to work on it or immediately unsafe, you know, on the facade. What, what are you traditionally looking for? Traditionally, the biggest problems are going to be in the buildings, which is a significant portion of the buildings in New York City that are either brick or masonry, mm-hmm. um, because they have steel that's embedded, that's corroding, and causing that brick or masonry to crack or displace. Um, on concrete facades, you're looking for spalls uh, or signs that a spall is developing, so a crack that's that's suggesting. Can you tell us what a spall is? Oh, for the people at home. Good question. So, <laughs> you know, most concrete has reinforcing steel to to help the concrete have you know strength other than just in compression. So, any any concrete structure has reinforcing steel in it. When water, air, you know, sometimes chlorides penetrates that concrete to the steel, that steel starts to rust or corrode. Um, that corrosion causes sort of a, an expansive force on the concrete and causes a fissure or a crack. Mm-hmm. And many times it'll start with just a, a, a crack along the length of that reinforcing. Gradually it'll grow to sort of um, spalling the face off of around that where you can actually see the rusted uh, reinforcing that's there. And the DOB, you know, sometimes the rebar is just not placed correctly and is just superficially right at the surface of the concrete. And the DOB is, has said that if they see exposed reinforcing, that's unsafe. It could not have developed into a, a crack or a spall, but the DOB is, is, is being very, very conservative. And that's some of the things that they've even challenged, you know, on reports that we have seen where there's been exposed reinforcing. It was declared to be swamp, um, and they said, no, that's unsafe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, you know, and sometimes even if you have a brick building, you might have a precast band at the slab edges or at a cornice or something like that. So this is something that you see quite often. So the brick buildings, lintels for solid walls or pre-war buildings. Um, and the lintels are the the piece holding up the bricks above the windows. Right. And yep. we see those rusting and bowing a lot. Yep. Yep. So that if it's rusting and bowing, is that considered an unsafe? Absolutely. Is, yep. yep. As soon as, as soon as the masonry is cracked or displaced, yeah. They're considering unsafe. You could have, we've seen cases where you'll have buildings where there's a one brick with one little crack in it, and they'll declare that one brick as an unsafe as an mm-hmm. unsafe condition. And so they're, you know, they are. It's not your consultant. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's how the DOB is enforcing a, lo- a lot of these conditions. Um, something that we see a lot of reports is it says typical, mm-hmm. typical condition, and it doesn't really map out 
I mean, I have my own thoughts on this, but it doesn't really map out the condition. It could say typical condition of maybe deteriorating brick or typical, you know, typical condition is something. I don't know what you would say, but well, they, they won't allow that anymore. No, I, that was, that was where I was going yeah. because that's kind of an open-ended argument. It, it used to be, I'll tell you, it used to be that you could say, you know, cracking typicals, you know, lintels typical. They want to know, you know, you're supposed to give them a sketch with the location of every of every condition. Yeah. And if you have an old report that has that, that somehow made it through previously, when you amend those as safe conditions, they're going to want to see a map of every one of them. Yeah. And very often they'll send somebody out and make sure that there aren't any other similar typical conditions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is a very high level of service that um, is being required now because they want to know they don't want to hear tuck pointing or spalling or lintels. They mm-hmm. want to know this lintel, that lintel, this lintel, that lintel, and they want a photo for every single one of them. Uh, it's a lot of work. Very, yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. You know, the photos for these reports are are you know can be in the tens and tens of pages. Yeah. Okay, so we've we've talked about the difference this cycle of the experience of the people inspecting and then also everybody working under them. Uh, we've talked about the. Uh, basically the measurements of where we have to inspect and how we inspect. Um, We've talked about some certain unsafe conditions, which are the lentils, it's the spalling. A lot of time we'll have a building that has a water leak and then we're going through the facade inspection. And if the water leak is coming from maybe the parapet or if it's coming from the roof, are those things that we typically get involved in with the FISP inspection, or is that separate as a water leak issue that we use a roofer or a con- same? Me could be even the same contractor. You know, that's that's an interesting question. The FISP report actually includes a statement regarding the building's weatherproofing, mm-hmm. and that has to be given, uh, you know, a condition. And if it goes unrepaired, it would be theoretically unsafe, as if it was a structural condition. I haven't seen the DOB come down on uh, a disagreement with the condition of the weatherproofing, but weatherproofing is a vital, you know, portion of the FISP report. Yeah. More often than not, that hasn't been the emphasis because they're looking for public safety. You know, unfortunately, these FISP reports have nothing to do with anybody inside the building. It's all about people outside the building. Mm-hmm. One of the th- things that we try to you know promote is to use this as an opportunity to create a deliverable, you know, for the people that, are residing in the building or owning the building, right? Not just the the public safety. So, right. you know, if you can switch the, the focus from compliance to doing something prudent for the building, sometimes it's a small difference. So there's there's no reason why you couldn't address those conditions while complying with the, the right. FISP regulations. But oftentimes that's not the focus. Oftentimes it's let's just do what we have to do for the for the DOB and and, and we'll worry about that some other time. But it is a good time to include it because then you're. It, let's say you do need permits. You can put all of this under one, you know, roof on the on the. Well, I guess that's a weird pun, but you can put it under the same permit, right? You don't have to draw up multiple permits because if we let it go and then we have to do more work in a few years that require, if it requires permits, then we're gonna have to be filing those again. There are so many costs involved with repairing exterior wall that have nothing to do with brick or mortar or caulk mm-hmm. that you can almost add any amount of work to it and it almost insignificantly changes the cost of your project. By the time you've gotten the 
CD5s for your scaffolding and the sidewalk permits for your sidewalk shed and, and the site safety inspections for your taller buildings and all of these other general conditions that surround it, you know, half your expense is just the sort of the intangibles of doing yeah, work. The in mobilization. The yeah, exactly. Are we given more time now if we're, let's say you come and the building is unsafe um, and you see an unsafe condition. Are we, as the owners, managers, given more time now by the city to erect that scaffolding? Has that window of time opened up a little bit to allow us to not, because it's almost impossible to get a bridge up the next day. Yes and no. What they've done is they've eliminated some of the paperwork because you mm -hmm. had 30 days and you could get extensions on that. They basically gave you the extensions right up front. You get 90 days. But you're still responsible for immediately protecting the public and you can still be violated if you don't. Right. So, you know, the chances of you getting a violation, once that fist three for the unsafe condition goes out, you're essentially getting a violation. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, really there's there's really no extra time. They've just they've just relieved some of their own administrative burden with that. But, you know, you're under the same same yeah. time obligations as you always were. So we're seeing a lot less swamp approvals now, right? They're they're they question. They're, yeah, so they're wanting to get us out of what you said before is the cycle of, you know, swamp and then swamp. And then, and I've had, I took over buildings where like you look, you trail it out and some from cycle five through eight, they were swamp. And at some point you have to bite the bullet and you have to do the work and get into a safe place. And then hopefully you can get to the next cycle and continue to be safe, right? With right. all preventative maintenance. Yeah. But are there things between the cycles and everybody uses the cycles as the benchmark of to when to do, when to do the inspection. And we're, you know, we're talking about buildings that are greater than six and a half stories, but the reality is all buildings in New York city, no matter their size are required by law to be kept in a safe condition. So I've had buildings that are three or four stories that we took over and we've had architects come down, you know, it was one of the due diligence of us taking over as managing agent. We went down to this, con I can think of one co-op in the West village and we went down, it was a multi-building complex and it probably was 25 years since they've done any work and falling apart, you know, and immediately unsafe, throw up a bridge. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be the bearer, you know, the bearer of bad news, but I also don't want to be sued and I don't want somebody to get hurt. So you kind of have to bite the bullet and the, and the board understood in that reality of, okay, you can see the Boeing, you know, you can see it coming over the the facade, the parapet, and you can see the lintel, you know, bowing and um, a lot of these things. But in between um, cycles, what can we do preventatively to make it easier for us on the next cycle around? Well, first, I want to emphasize something I, I alluded to earlier. You know, engineers and architects are under an obligation to cite an unsafe condition, regardless of when, you know, they are in the cycle. Once they see it, it's reportable. Yeah. And, you know, the more public these, you know, um, uh, instances become, you know, you're going to see more and more of these out-of-cycle reports getting filed. Um, you know, but there's never a law that says you, you can't do maintenance until you absolutely have to. Right. You know. And nor and, should you. Right. Because then you're, from the other side, when we're bidding it out and we know that we're off-cycle, maybe the, you know, the contractors, when it's, everybody's doing sub-cycle A right now, right? When everybody's doing it, the prices go up. If we can catch it off cycle, not only are we doing the prudent thing by investigating, but maybe we could also get maybe a, a, a savings factor there too, because we're doing it when our, you know, a gun is into our head. Right. You know? 
Yeah, capital planning, a facade assessment that's not a local 11 assessment. We used to do tons of them in New York. Now we, the only facade assessments we do are, are for local 11, but, you know, they can, you know, you can do a little bit more detailed, you know, study. You know, now that now that your scaffolding costs are going to be tens of thousands potentially as, yeah. as compared to the previous cycle, you know, it, it pays to really take a longer term look at, hey, what's a 15 or 20 year repair look like, mm-hmm. you know, and what's that going to cost? And maybe you maybe you do the emergency stuff for that cycle, but you have a four or five year implementation program for the long term repair so you can so you can get out of that. Right. By the way, one thing we didn't talk about, too, that's different about this cycle is that for cavity walls, which is a significant number of them, they're requiring probes now unless you had recently done a repair project. Mm-hmm. So that could add considerable expense to the inspection. Yeah. And if you don't know if it's a cavity wall or not, you're going to see people doing probes because they don't know if it's a, if it's a cavity wall or not. Right. So you're going to see a lot more probes uh, and destructive testing on these things, you know, further increasing it. You know, but there's a benefit to it. You know, maintenance on buildings eventually will have to get done. So on one hand, you know, these FISP laws make these um, maintenance expenses unplanned and untimely. Um, but if you take the view that this will eventually get done, you know, with your with your approach, knowing, you know, knowing how the standards are increasing, and you take a proactive approach, you can really start to take control of that timing yourself and not be, you know, enslaved to right. cycle A or B or, yeah. or C and, and get ahead of it and, and look more long-term. You know, the problem is, is that no one usually has the money right when they you know, commit to doing something like that. Yeah. But, you know, I've had, yeah, I've had buildings that have not had the money, but they know that they're refinancing between now and the next cycle. So they say, okay, let's do the minimally uh, allowed work, keep it swamp. And then we know as soon as the financing hits that we'll have the money, we'll do the work and then we'll be safe on the next one. So I think it's strategic planning um, on the financial side and what could we legally do? Um, what could we logically do? And won't really leave you know us open to so much liability as long as it's not a danger to the public. You know that's the one thing that we're worried about. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of refinances and a lot of condition assessments or IPNAs in the city as part of that refinance. And one of the largest ones are make sure we get our facade work done under this refinance so that we you know we can have some relief from it because the costs are are only increasing. So we talked about um, the brick construction, which was a big um, part of this facade program but what are your thoughts on the newer construction the glass wall the curtain wall construction um are you seeing as many problems with that type of construction as you are with the masonry no the glass the glass doesn't deteriorate the same way the masonry does and the masonry buildings are older so you know that you know there's that you know the, the curtain wall buildings have their own um they have their own challenges and uh you know, the sealants and the gaskets where um, sometimes there's connection issues if there's water infiltration. They're less noticeable visibly, and they'll rarely fail a facade law inspection the way the brick is because you can very easily double-check somebody's work with a good pair of binoculars. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in a curtain wall building, it's, it's a lot harder to detect because, you know, a lot of the conditions that might be a problem are really buried on both sides of that yeah, I've seen a lot of problems with curtain walls. Yeah. Uh, just the wrong fasteners, the wrong screws. You know, it wasn't what was called for in the renderings or in the as-built drawings. And then you get into a situation where it becomes unsafe because it doesn't look unsafe, but it wasn't built to the spec. And we've we've seen these things shear off. Oh, yeah. like these attachments to the building just shear oh, yeah. off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's scary. 
Yeah, and 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 again, it's not something you can see with binoculars. You know, yeah. it's something where you know you have intimate knowledge of building, living with it, and you start dealing with a problem, usually outside of the facade law, and that's when they and that's when they get found. But yeah, yeah, problems with curtain walls—they're either nothing or they're huge. Did I miss anything in terms of local law eleven FISP? Did I did I fail to cover any topics? Uh, penalties. Oh yeah, let's talk about penalties. Penalty. Everybody's interested in penalties. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, one of the reasons, again, the DOB does not want to see a, a, a landscape of sidewalk shed. So they are dramatically increasing the penalties for failing to comply with a lot of these new requirements. You know, um, you know so uh, the, the, a lot of the costs are increasing from $250 a month to $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain uh, failure to file uh, fines that are increasing from one thousand per year to five thousand per year, so they're not doubling them. They're you know, you know, they're they're increasing them by at least four or five times. Right. But in the in the grand scheme of things, five thousand dollars into a million or two million dollar job, some boards are willing to say, okay, we'll take it, or some building owners will say, I'll I'll take the five thousand dollar fine if it'll buy me a little bit of time, and we understand we're in. Maybe we'll protect the building, but we won't do the work to satisfy. But if you if you put the the bridging up where you protect the public, um, and you file unsafe, you have the penalty for filing unsafe. But you're showing that you're protecting the public. So are they still going to continue to fine you if you don't do the work? Like, what's the time frame that you have usually to satisfy that? Well, I think I think you really need to be starting work or 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 demonstrate a program within that ninety days. So you're okay. You're gonna you're gonna That's be fair. violated on a, on a monthly basis after after that ninety days if they don't see, you know, uh, progress. So part of your job, come in and inspect, and then depending on the contract that you sign with the client, you say, okay, here's what we see um, when when you're making up the specifications to bid. It's typically unit quantities, uh, you know, uh, linear feet of this number of sills times X amount. What is your per unit price so that we could say, okay, for um, bidders one through five, they all submit the same schedule. They all submit the same unit prices. We're not the same, but their version of the unit prices. And that's a way for us to do an apples to apples comparison. And then when the, so that's picked off. And then on the other side, when there's change orders, which there's almost always change orders, they're doing it on the per unit basis and there's no surprises at the end, right? That's the way that we should be doing it. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, the, the you know, unit prices are kind of a gamble, right? Because it depends on who set the number of units. And I think, you know, I can speak for us, mm-hmm. you know, and I know others, you know, perform similarly is that, you know, we'll estimate the number of units. And so that when you're getting a bid back from a contractor, it's, uh, you know, they call it unit price to a stipulated sum. So it's not lump sum, but everybody's bidding on the same number of lintels, the same number of sills, the same linear feet of caulking and pointing, and the same number of bricks or, or what have you. And hopefully you've captured all the right work items. So if something goes, goes over, you pay a little more. If something goes under, you pay a little less. And yeah. hopefully the overs and the underages, you know, end up somewhere in the right place. Um, we find that the best way to reduce your exposure to change orders is doing more study up front. So, you know, so um, if there's a benefit to the increased requirements by the city, it should be a consultant being able to, you know, have a higher level of certainty for that scope of work, especially if you're doing probes, because so many times the change orders are because let's say you have a a flashing that's contaminated with asbestos and you thought you're going to remove five bricks, 
and now you have to remove six or seven bricks because it goes up so high on the slab edge or, or, or what have you. So, you know, there could be a bright side to all of this extra um, requirement is that, you know, maybe, you know, the consultants will use that as, as uh, extra due diligence to help ensure that there's, you know, less risk to cost overruns during the project. Yeah. It's all very interesting. This is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about. You know, you know, anytime somebody makes you do something, you know, there's a pushback on both sides and yeah. it really has been a cat and mouse game, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of consultants have, you know, tried to weigh the balance between pleasing the client who's paying you and satisfying the DOB. And, yeah. and the DOB has been watching very closely. So, you know, uh, public safety is, is, is a difficult thing, but you know, the more, the more widely, you know, the accidents are, are, you know, I've had, yeah, I've had a lot of clients upset at a lot of architects and I always try to tell them, you know, it's their license at the end of the day, should the building fall and you're on the building, not only are you losing your license, you'll probably go to jail, you know, if it wasn't caught, oh, it, yeah. it's that serious. No, it's very serious. And the DOB is literally pulling in the consultants into their office and challenging them and they are removing people's licenses and practice. Yeah. So that's, that's not a theory. It's not over conservative. They didn't used to do it before. Yeah. But there's been enough in the in the news and enough issues and people have died so yeah. they mm-hmm. really want to protect themselves too yeah. it's everybody's looking for protection yeah. so we can find you guys that i we're done i'm assuming we've hit everything yeah we're good yeah you're good sure okay so i'll give everybody your website it's o and s associates.com and they can reach you by phone at 646-736-0699 and i'm also i'm going to put this on the description of the Great. podcast also and uh, you're Bill Payne. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're bringing the pain. Bringing the pain. Hopefully we're leaving the pain. <laughs> our job is the aspirin. That's yeah. The other way around. And, and a lot of things we talked about, um, we've had some published articles that, you know, if you didn't write all this stuff down, you'd be able to find a lot of that information on our website. And, and oh, that's awesome. As well. well, let me remind everybody, uh, NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's NYC real estate podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Bill, it was great to have you. Hopefully, if you found this helpful listening in your, in your car or at home or at the office, you can share it and subscribe. That would be amazing. And uh, we look forward to producing more of these and send your questions our way. But thank you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Mark. All right, take care.